You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Well, we're going to turn to scripture and we're finishing 1 Thessalonians. Barb is going to read for us. You can find us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 24. I just have to say, this is really one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I have several, but this ranks right up there. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Thank you, Barb. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again, and it's a wonderful opportunity to get to come and preach and share the word together. We've just been so grateful, my family and I, for how we've been received and really supported in this transition coming to the Y Church. So thank you to each one of you for contributing to that welcome that we've received. So my family and I have recently returned from serving as missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And if you're uncertain where Papua New Guinea is, it's north of Australia, right near the equator. Sometimes people think it's a country in Africa. It's not. It's in Australasia, Oceania. And we lived there for about a year, and we knew to expect many differences between our previously known context and this new-to-us context of Papua New Guinea. Even if we didn't know exactly what a particular change would be, we knew it would be different. And one of these differences was the frequent power cuts, or what they would refer to as load shedding. When we tell people that we were in Papua New Guinea, they don't necessarily know what to picture. So we didn't live in a hut or off the grid, deep in a jungle village. We lived in the second most populous city of Papua New Guinea, and we lived in a house and a neighborhood that, at its most basic levels, was pretty similar, not too different, from what you and I know here in the U.S. However, the infrastructure system was much different there compared to here. For whatever reason, the power company needed to conserve electricity, and that meant shutting off the power at sporadic times to different parts of the city. There was never any consistency as to how long the power would be shut off for. There were times when it was a matter of minutes, and there was times when it would be seven hours or longer without power. Usually, though, the electricity would be off for a couple hours a few times a day. We did not have a generator, and even if we did, we didn't have air conditioning. So we really relied heavily on the ceiling fans. The part of Papua New Guinea that we were in was hot and humid year-round. 
the temperatures could easily get into the 90s, and the dew point was always around 74. So what we're coming into, I think, like on Wednesday this week, think about that like every day, but no air conditioning and sometimes the power getting flipped on and off. So there's always a great feeling of excitement when we would hear that hum of the appliances turning back on and start seeing the fans rotate again when the power was switched on. And so the magnitude of that emotion was possibly only eclipsed by the magnitude of the deflation we would feel when the power would click off outside of our control. But there was a gracious middle ground called low current when the power company would reduce the supply of electricity going out. So this meant that some outlets and some lights and other things would work where others did not. So I remember one night returning home from the YWAM base. We lived right next door to the YWAM base. The YWAM base on that night had electricity running. As I was going towards our house, I could see the security lights were on, and even our neighbors downstairs who rented below where we rented, they also had power. I could hear the rugby game was on TV, the lights were on, and then I went upstairs to the part of the house that we rented, and it was dark, and it was hot. The fridge wasn't running, the fans weren't turning, and there was one light that did work. And that light was in the bathroom, and it shone a little bit into the living room area. Now, it was never fun when the power wasn't working. And that particular evening was even more challenging, since I knew that neighbors, even people living in the same house as us, had power, and we did not. I was faced with some choices. Would I choose to grumble, which I think would be very natural and understandable, Or would I choose to find something to be grateful for in the midst of this situation, which would be much less my natural instinct and a harder option to pursue? So maybe all of us can't relate perfectly to that exact situation of having the power cut off in Papua New Guinea, but I'm sure all of us can reflect upon times in our lives when we were faced with an unpleasant or challenging situation. Since we have been faced with such circumstances of whatever severity, That means we've also been faced with the opportunity to choose gratitude or to not. So we just talked a little bit ago with our table question about minor inconveniences. But besides little hiccups along life's way, we're all human beings living in this world, so we probably don't have to dig too far back in our memories to pull up a recollection of something that was not our first choice to experience I'm sure all of us can remember or relate to something more than just a minor inconvenience. And you may not even have to go back to your memories. For many of us, there may be something that we are presently experiencing that we would much rather not be. There are so many ways that we can respond to these kinds of circumstances. There's so many pieces of our lives going on around us at any given moment, and then something hard breaks in, something that's uninvited, unwanted, I'm sure we can all relate to these very unpleasant and unwelcomed surprises. Praise God that even in the midst of the most challenging of circumstances, he does not get taken by surprise. And praise God that he does not leave us to muddle through on our own and to figure it out. And that very well may be our natural response, that we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we're going to put our heads down and carry on. And that is often celebrated and caught, if not explicitly taught. But what does God's word say to us? What direction are we given directly from God through his written word concerning this idea of gratitude? 
So we're going to look specifically at this final part of this letter from Paul to the Thessalonians. And we as a church have been going through this letter for the past several weeks. And here we are at the end of the letter where Paul is making sure to include some final instructions. As we look at it, we can divide these 13 verses into about five related but still unique mini-sections. So first, Paul is giving some instructions concerning those who have emerged as servant leaders in this community. Then he has some words concerning those on the other side of things and those who need some help and encouragement. In the middle of the passage are clear, concise, simple and short directives which relate to one's spirituality. This segues nicely to the next short section concerning matters of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Paul speaks words of blessing and encouragement to these believers in the Lord. So we might give these small sections the following subheadings. To serve, to lead, seek others out, practice gratitude, cooperate with the Spirit, and trust God. So let's look first at this idea of serving to lead. This idea might sound a little backwards to some. Surely people who serve, serve, and those who lead, lead. But I'm guessing that around here, this idea is not all that new. I have already seen firsthand in my short time here at the Y Church that one of the strongest leadership characteristics valued here is serving others. We see this directly in the text relating to Paul's counsel to the Thessalonian believers. Like any Christian community, the Thessalonian church was made up of people in different places along their faith journey. Certain people took on some role of leadership, and even in their position over others, they were working hard in this community with an outward, other-oriented goal rather than a strictly self-promoting or arrogant attitude. We find this style of leadership described earlier in this letter when Paul references himself and his co-laborers as those who lived among the people and did not assert their authority, but cared for them as a parent would to a small child. And of course, our ultimate model and example of this service-oriented leadership is Jesus, who chose supreme humility and self-sacrificial love at every point of his earthly ministry, even to the point of a brutal death for the sake and benefit of others. I'm reminded of a director of ministry that we worked under years ago, and it was in a season where there was less people around, and it came time to clean the facility. And he stepped up, and he chose that he would clean the toilets. To me, the most unwanted job. And he, as the leader, could have easily locked himself in his office and said that's for other people, but he chose to do that. And we've seen that as our family, too, of how much servant leadership is prioritized here at the Y Church, of leaders who are not shy to serve others and to sacrifice time or sweat, moving our boxes last weekend, and really serving others. And it seems highly plausible that those in the Thessalonian context, if they continued in this high respect and love for their leaders, that this would contribute to their own character and faith formation. And perhaps even one day some of them became leaders themselves in this community or another community of the early church. Love and peace are to be that bridge that relates leaders and those they lead. What an unusual but outstanding model of leadership. I imagine if most of us were to write about how leaders and those being led should relate to one another, we would include things like be professional, keep shared goals in mind, set targets for measurable success. And those are all good and helpful things. 
But Paul's focus regarding the relationship between those who are led and those leading them is full of love and peace. The other things we just listed are things that may very well fit under those two broader categories, but it is a helpful reminder for those in leadership and those who are being led to simply pursue peace with one another and for the relationship to be based in the kind of love that we see in Scripture. And that kind of love is not self-oriented, but is other-oriented and self-sacrificial in nature. So let's look at our second point, to seek others out. This focus on others is not just for those in leadership, but for everyone who is a part of the community. This applies to us in our Christian communities today as well. I'm sure we can all think of people or situations in our lives that would benefit from us demonstrating encouragement, patience, and kindness. Like so much else, this can be easier said than done. How often do we have a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, or friend that really tests our patience? Or someone that we have a difficult time wanting to encourage and show kindness to? Offering encouragement and showing kindness is much easier to do when we are being shown kindness or being encouraged by others. And is much more difficult to do or want to do when we have been wronged. The New Testament message is consistently clear, though, that we are not to follow that all-too-familiar reflex of our flesh in which we desire to wrong others who have wronged us. Community is so central to Christian life. And Christians, just like non-Christians, are bound to bump into some sort of conflict or difference in our relationships with one another. I think we can all relate to needing to receive encouragement, patience, and kindness. So conflict in and of itself is not bad. It's actually a good sign of a mix of different people and the different perspectives, understandings, and experiences that we have. The challenge then is, within that diversity, to pursue and sustain unity, and also to recognize and pursue unity over uniformity. So we can kind of think of the difference between the two like this. Certain workplaces or schools require a uniform. In many ways, everyone looks the same. But there may or may not be a high level of unity just because everyone's wearing the same clothes. Even when we do not fully understand the other person or think just like them or act just like them, we can pursue unity in our relationship together. The kindness that we demonstrate to others not only benefits our personal relationships and the church community, but it also serves as a positive witness to others, others who we may not even realize are observing our lives and are noticing how we are showing kindness to people or situations that may not be our natural instinct to do. Now, this kind of kindness is not rolling over and being used by others, nor is it an artificial kindness that runs out when the rubber meets the road. It is not based in our flesh, but in God and is evidence of the presence and work of God's Spirit in our lives. So as we move through the passage, we come to the section we've connected to, practicing gratitude. In this part of his letter, Paul includes three directives concerning how the Thessalonians ought to live out their lives in Christ and in accordance with his will. Though this letter wasn't originally written to us, it certainly has a message that is for us. Now, if you've ever asked yourself, what is God's will for my life? This is part of it. Always be joyful, praying, and giving thanks. Always. And I even looked it up in the biblical Greek, and always means always. In this brief section, 
I would like us to really home in on this part, each of these imperatives, to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, has a relationship with this idea of having gratitude. I don't know about you, but I know in my own prayer life, it can be easy to only turn to God with a bunch of requests, share things with Him that are weighing me down, or turn to Him when I can't do something myself. And those are all valid and needed expressions of prayer. And it's good that there's a prayer life at all. But let's not just leave it at that point. How much more enhanced would our prayer lives be if gratitude were a significant and foundational part of our prayer lives? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he started with glorifying God before touching on human need. Of course, we should be going to God in prayer with our prayer needs And I think there's a precedent found in Scripture for us to seek God before everything else and to trust Him to provide. God is the best provider. It's simply who He is. Jovi, my daughter, doesn't have to ask me to be six foot two today or for my voice to sound the way that it does. Those characteristics are just indisputable parts of who I am. How much greater, then, is God's nature and character? God is the ultimate provider. May we always turn to him with gratitude for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Let's not be shy in voicing these things to God. Prayer changes things. When we look at the activity of God in and around us, we are quickly reminded of the many, many things that we have to be thankful for and to experience joy because of. Unlike happiness, joy is not contingent on circumstances. We are instructed in James to consider it pure joy when we encounter the tough stuff in life. Now, that's not our human natural response. The response that Scripture calls for comes from beyond us. Like kindness, it is a fruit of the Spirit of God, and we need Him for this fruit to be produced in our lives. What Paul is instructing the Thessalonians and indirectly us to do is to be distinct from the typical culture and values of the world. We may have a hard time being thankful, but by God's doing, we can express thanks in each and every circumstance. It is going to look and feel different to be a follower of Jesus, and that's a good thing. They may be challenging at times and cost in different ways, but that distinction is exactly what should be marking all disciples of Jesus, both then and now. Our fourth point is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The fruit produced in our lives by the Spirit of God is certainly something that He does that we cannot do on our own. There is, of course, the need for us to cooperate with God. God does not barge His way into our lives or force us into anything we do not agree to. He chooses a knock on the door rather than a battering ram. When we have opened the door to Him, and say yes to him, it is more than just a one-time event. We ought to regularly and continually cooperate with the Holy Spirit. If we are wondering what that might look like practically, Paul speaks to that. Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica to not quench the Spirit, not to treat prophecies with contempt, but to test them all. Hold on to what is good, avoid every kind of evil. Now, depending on our experience, if someone were to approach us saying that they have a prophetic word to share with us, we might welcome it or we might feel a little uncertain. It's good and scriptural to test prophetic words. So what does that look like? 
Well, one of the best tests is to compare what has been shared with us with the written Word of God. If someone is truly being empowered by the Holy Spirit to deliver a message to someone else, God will never contradict Himself in how He has already revealed Himself through Scripture. We can personally weigh the Word that was shared with us as well. Does it speak to us? Does it speak to our circumstances and ring true? We can also remember Paul's words in another one of his letters. 1 Corinthians 14.3 tells us that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So after praying and weighing the word, a very practical test of it would be to obey it. If it truly is a message from God, this is then a way we may cooperate with the Holy Spirit, where we are not quenching the Spirit, but allowing Him to act as only He can. We may hear the word prophecy and think of men with long names and long scrolls and long beards back from Old Testament times, but intelligible utterances that originate from God and are shared from one person to another or to a group of people still have a place today and have a place in our own Christian community and experience. This can take expression in different ways. It could be big and grand, but it could be as familiar as God putting something on your heart to share with someone else that you know didn't originate from you. If we're wondering what we're sensing is whether or not we are to share it with another person, those same tests can apply. Now, I've interacted with people on both ends of the spectrum and places in between. When it's genuine and sincere, all of operating in the prophetic relates to this cooperation with the Holy Spirit and segues perfectly into the next area that Paul goes into in this letter. The fifth point that we can draw from this passage is to trust God. A lot of what we can glean from this part of the passage is to be open to God and in a posture ready to receive. We do this both in our hearts and in our minds. When our inner beliefs and attitudes are shifted, our outward decisions and actions are affected. So I come from several years of serving with an international missions organization called Youth with a Mission, or YWAM, And an established teaching in YWAM is something called the belief tree. In this metaphor, the ground that we're planted in is our worldview. The roots are our beliefs, and the trunk is our values. Our decisions are what branch out of our values, and the fruit produced by all of this is seen in our actions. So when the ground that we are planted in is self-reliance and individualism, we will see corresponding fruit. Likewise, when the soil that we are planted in is trust in God and functioning in community, we will see fruit that reflects those values, beliefs, and perspective. When we are overwhelmed or faced with circumstances that are greatly challenging, we have that opportunity to turn inward. We may also turn to outlets that are ultimately unhelpful, even if they seem to offer a bit of a break, a relief, or distraction in the moment. We also have the opportunity to turn to God in trust and in dependence on Him, acknowledging our inability, our grief, our pain, our anger, our confusion. We can demonstrate our trust in God and His ability by being open with Him about where we are at and by releasing to Him what we may want to hold on to so tightly. When we open our hands to God, we not only release but we also are ready to receive. Both are rooted in trust. God is faithful, and he will surely do what only he can do. 
So I want to propose a focused encouragement to us all. In light of this passage, how will we let it sink into us so that when we are confronted with a challenge or when we are confronted with a difficulty, that we are already primed to choose gratitude rather than that natural reflex response? Each of us has to think about how we may need to change things on the inside so that reflex shifts towards gratitude. Will we allow God to do the work that only he can do while we cooperate with him in ways that only we can? Again, cooperation in this matter may be easier said than done, and it will likely not be an overnight change. But nonetheless, that slow work is well worth it. There's no particular order that we need to do things or a special way we need to say certain words. We start applying this by going to God with open hearts and open hands. Yielding ourselves to him and giving of ourselves and what we have to God. And we start by putting it into practice. If we want to grow in gratitude, let's start with what's within reach. Let's start with the battles that are easier for us to win. Then we can grow the strength of this skill and apply it to areas where our natural reflex is a little more stubborn and will take more time and consistency to shift towards gratitude. Imagine what our families and friendships would look like if we capture what we learned from this passage and lived it out well. Think about how the dynamics of the relationships with our colleagues and neighbors could be affected if we really engaged with it and let it sink in and work in our lives. What if me and you really took on being committed to our growth in being gracious, grateful, and godly? Now, those can be broadly defined categories, so let's use what we've drawn from the text this morning if we're wondering how to grow in the areas of grace, gratitude, and godliness. As we've outlined here already, easy steps to take would be serve to lead, seek others out, practice gratitude, cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and trust in God. Imagine what could happen if we dedicated some time and space in our lives to grow in each of these areas. How could the Y Church be impacted? or the YMCA, or our local communities. The cultivation of gratitude is essential to health in our relationships with God, with others, and personally. And as faithful followers of Christ, we ought to practice choosing and growing in gratitude at every opportunity that we encounter. Sometimes the circumstances we may find ourselves in will be small, like a power outage, or forgetting to bring something to work and leaving it at home. Other times it may be more significant, much more significant, like a layoff, a significant health issue, or even the death of a loved one. As followers of Jesus, let's be different than the world around us. Let's put our gratitude muscles to work, improving and strengthening this important and needed skill. It's only by God's grace that we can be grateful. You may have heard of grace being defined as unmerited favor. If grace is unmerited favor, perhaps we can consider gratitude as responding favorably, even in circumstances that do not merit such response. And let's not minimize the pain. Let's not minimize the magnitude or the validity of the difficulties and hardships that we encounter in life. And let's choose the avenue that will draw us closer to God, that will strengthen our inner being and be a witness to the world around us of who God is and what he does. And let's do this together, supporting one another in community as we seek Jesus 
connect together, and share his love. I invite you to please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for a time and place that we can gather with one another. Thank you for your word. We thank you for this whole idea of, of gratitude, of expressing thanks, of choosing to be in prayer ongoing, and to rejoice, Lord, at all times. Lord, we recognize that that is not our natural inclination or even an easy thing for us to do operating out of ourselves. But we thank you by your empowerment, by your work in our lives, we can be this way. So we thank you for this time. We ask for your word to just really settle in us, that we'd respond to you and what you've shared in your word throughout this week and in the time to come. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.